Uh, hello, everyone. My name's Nick. Uh, great to be with you today. It's a long passage that we've just read. It gets even longer. We didn't actually finish it there, and it's got a lot of hard things. Uh, so we'll do our best to cover what we can in this time, um, but also recognize that you guys have got Connect Group, hopefully, for a good reason to get in amongst it and, and see some of those things in more detail later on in the week. Uh, but let's pray for God's help to see uh, some really good things from his word today. Father God, thank you that uh, we get to be here together. We get to sit under what you said uh, all those years ago, uh, and we get to learn from Jesus. Um, pray that uh, his words, Lord, which are quite hard today, uh, would hit us where we need to be hit, uh, would show us that we deeply need him. In his name we pray. Amen. So I want to start off with a confession for everyone here. I love when sermons start that way, right? <laughs> Um, my confession, I hope you guys are ready, uh, it's a bit of a shocker, but I actually belong to Generation Z. <laughs> I know, Gen Z, Zoomers, uh, I might not, actually, I do look it, I look about 13, so <laughs> maybe you think I, I do belong in Gen Z, but I am a lot older. Uh, in any case, the reason I want to share that secret with you is so that I can then share you one of our secrets, because... <laughs> Although I didn't choose to be Gen Z, we Gen Zs love to choose. We love having lots of options, right? We love being able to forge our own paths in life. Uh, and I think that's the reason why there's been an explosive popularity of the choose-your-own-adventure media. There's a sort of games out there where you make real important decisions that affect where the story heads and the trajectory, the outcome. And these, these games, uh, you often feel like you're in the driver's seat. What you're doing matters, right? But if you play enough of them, you realize most of your decisions don't actually matter. <laughs> most of them take you to the same place. Uh, they're the predetermined outcome that they want you to land in, right? Uh, one of the examples on screen uh, is a particularly egregious one. Uh, I don't know if you guys have played Mass Effect 3, but the, the developers, they promised that all your decisions made so much impact, life and death, game-changing, hundreds of hours of investment, only to get three endings, blue, green, or red explosion. <laughs> it's a bit sad, right? But I actually think we like our spiritual lives to be a bit like the endings of Mass Effect 3. So we love a, a choose-your-own-adventure, right? To forge our own paths in life, choose our spiritual options. But then we'd love to think that those all lead back to basically the same outcome, right? Well, in the last few weeks, we've seen a bunch of people come across a major crossroads, a major decision. What are they going to make of this guy, Jesus? His message and his miracles have been hugely divisive. And some have seen these and decided, yeah, we're going to follow this guy, Jesus. We're going to commit to seeing him as king. Some have gone, no, we're going to oppose him. We're going to be foes. And still others are on the fence, right? They're kind of tentative fans. And today we're going to see those same three responses, follower, foe, and fan. But Jesus is going to make a huge claim. You see, Jesus, he's not just a character in this story. He's the author of the story, the one who knows which decisions actually matter. And he says the most important decision we'll ever make is what we make of Jesus. The ending we're going to get depends totally on how we respond to him. So whether there are three, four, or more responses to Jesus, the real question is, how many lead to the same outcome? 
How many are just the illusion of choice? Well, the first point in your outlines, and the first response we're going to look at, is getting Jesus right. This one's no surprise, because as we've been going through Matthew, Jesus, um, he's told us really clearly, Jesus is the king, and we need to follow him. Later in this passage, we see it reiterated. Jesus says that he's greater than Solomon and Jonah, the greatest king and prophet that Israel has ever seen. We didn't get to read it. I hope you guys will study it later. But Matthew wants us to make no mistake there. Jesus is the king of the whole world, and he's come to announce his kingdom personally. And we need to become his followers. But the real meat of today's passage is the question, what sort of king are we told to follow? Well, today Matthew emphasizes one word for us, merciful. Jesus is the merciful king. Let's see why mercy is so key to understanding who Jesus is, starting with last week when we read Matthew 11, verse 28. These are Jesus' awesome words. He says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus here is setting us up to really understand what his message, message and its miracles are all about. He's come to bring rest. And his first encounter in chapter 12 is all about rest, Sabbath rest. You see, the Sabbath, this was the Jews' mandatory day of rest. It's a day where they didn't, by God's command, they set aside all their work and committed themselves to resting. It was serious business for them. There's even a record in history of uh, this Jewish community who, rather than violate the Sabbath day, uh, didn't defend themselves against some attackers and actually let themselves be slaughtered. So it was really serious business to keep this commandment. And the Pharisees, who are the religious teachers of Jesus' day, they have to really pick up this mantle and run with it. So that they've made all these extra rules on top to make sure they don't break the Sabbath to make sure they don't work accidentally. Working accidentally, it sounds a little dumb, right? But I can tell you from experience, it is absolutely how I do all my work. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a serious problem. It's, you should have seen me write this sermon. Um, and for the Pharisees, they've taken these guidelines on how to avoid accidentally working, and they've elevated it to the status of one of God's rules. Um, and now they're accusing Jesus particularly, his disciples, of breaking those rules because they've gone around, they've kind of picked up some grain on their way, on their way journeying, and they've had a snack. And they're like, mm, that kind of counts as harvesting, you know, like a farmer. So it's a bit silly. And Jesus' response is really to the point. He quotes, first of all, what really matters to the Pharisees. Verse 3 to 5, the Old Testament law that they study. It's two stories about hunger on the Sabbath day and how God's, even God's actual rules were bent to show mercy. David and the priests, they needed food to stay alive. It's a bit more serious than, the, than what I thought of when I read this, but it's a bit like how sometimes I sneak the morning tea outside before the service uh, <laughs> because I, just, I know I'm not going to be able to get up here uh, without a little snack, you know? But this is actually life and death, and Jesus is saying, even God's rules were bent so that they could be shown mercy. And the principle should be obvious. Verse 7, 
Jesus says, If you'd known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. See, God's rules are about mercy, not meticulousness. Rest, not rigor. And that should really get us thinking about our rules in life as well, right? For example, think about our households. Are the rules that we set for the good of our family? Are they there to show mercy or just to assert to our kids who's in charge? And would your kids even be able to tell the difference between those two things? And personally speaking, we often have a lot of rules for life, right? You see, what the Pharisees might have done with their extra laws, I think Christians today can do with our convictions. Convictions, they actually really matter in the Bible. Don't break them. Uh, I find my own kind of personal rules uh, are really helpful for keeping me further away from sin that I find tempting. If I was a farmer as well, I might choose not to pick any grain for a snack on, the sab- on Sunday so that I could commit to resting, right? But the problem is when we take our rules and make them God's rules, and when we try and impose them on others, the Bible spills so much ink on the seriousness of trying to impose anything but God's rules on other people. When you start binding people to your parenting method, or to your diet, or to abstaining from alcohol, or your way of stewarding money wisely, or even your political allegiances, you stop showing mercy and start showing legalism. But Jesus, he's not about that. He's about bringing rest, bringing mercy. He shows us even more clearly in verse 9. We saw that in the kids' talk earlier, um, but we didn't see the context. He's actually giving a much more relatable example for any Kiwi bogans here, uh, of which I'm not one, but uh, he talks about how the Pharisees, if on a Sabbath day one of their sheep fell into a well, would they go pick him up? Would they go save their sheep? Well, just like any good Kiwi bloke, of course they would, right? They'd go put their sheep on the shoulders, take them back, uh, whatever that works in the South Island, I don't know. Uh, and Jesus says, if they do that, then of course I'm going to keep showing mercy by healing that man with his deformed hand. The, Jesus says what should be obvious in verse 12 on the back of this. A person is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. We'll come back to that in a moment, but I want to say that Matthew goes even further in the next section, saying Jesus' ministry is characterized by this mercy, so much that he has to keep showing mercy until, verse 20, he has led justice to victory, and the nations put their hope in his name. So we put these together and see that Jesus' mission is as a merciful king, because mercy is how he accomplishes his victory as the king. We're clued into this back in verse 6 when Jesus says to the Pharisees, something greater than the temple is here. See, what Jesus offers is greater than the temple. The temple offered the Jews of Jesus' time temporary mercy for sins at a cost. But when Jesus dies on the cross, he offers lasting mercy at a completely free price. If you're here bearing guilt, feeling ashamed of things, 
then remember that if we choose to follow him, we can now experience Jesus' mercy 24-7. There's real rest, real comfort, knowing that we've received mercy, the mercy of being called God's children, unconditionally loved. And that's what Jesus calls his followers right at the end in verse 49. He says, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Not only is there great rest in following our merciful King, but there's also an invitation to live out the family likeness. Followers of Jesus, we ought to show mercy in response to the mercy of the cross that we've been shown. I hope this motivates us as we think about serving Jesus with our life in church and our households as well. I have to say, honestly, this morning, I didn't wake up particularly motivated. Some things had happened, and I did not feel like coming here today. Um, But I turned to a passage that I love, and I was really just uh, shocked almost to read the first verse. It began with, Since we have received this ministry because of mercy, we do not give up. I was reminded that I serve not because uh, anything special. I serve because I've been shown mercy, that Jesus has served me first. He's paid for my mistakes, my inadequacies, and I shouldn't give up. And that, I think, is a special encouragement if you're feeling the weight of your life at the moment. Remember that you've been shown mercy, invited to show mercy to others. And I want to add, if Jesus said that it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, then we want to think about how that impacts our rest as well, right? How are we using our rest time to actually do good for others? I think often I think about it as concentrated me time when I have a day off. I'm just going to serve my own interests. I'm just going to uh, do things what I, what I need to do to feel better, right? Um, and often that involves meeting other people, you know, but it's really just to on my terms, right? But I've recognized that actually seeing those opportunities to do good on our time off, to love others, to care for people, is often the most rewarding, refreshing thing of all as we remember the mercy Jesus has shown us. I also want to say that I'm grateful for people who've taken the opportunity to serve more of their Sundays as well, uh, to get stuck in, to set up things here today, or the mystery lunch hosts later on who are showing the mercy of hospitality uh, to our people here so that we can love and uh, share our lives and stories with each other. This is what getting Jesus right looks like, getting Jesus as the merciful king we should follow and do likewise. So that's getting Jesus right. But we also spent a lot of the time in that passage seeing some people who get Jesus super wrong. This is point two. It's an understatement, really. Because look at what happens in verse 14 after the Pharisees see Jesus do his miracles. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. If you've been around a while, that might not feel bizarre because we often diss the Pharisees, right? Like we give them a really hard time. But it is super weird because they, of all people, have been waiting their whole lives for the king who will show mercy to Israel, the king who uh, will come and perform miracles and free them. So how can they respond so wrong? 
I was thinking about this, and I think it comes down to a matter of perception. See, I have uh, the privilege of being an uncle to two nephews, um, and one of those nephews is old enough that I get to you know, play in the sandpit with him, I get to take him out to the playground, it's a great time. Um, but I have a weird irrational fear, uh, I haven't shared it with anyone, uh, of taking him along to the mall. Um, I just kind of picture, you know, we're having a good time, we're checking out whatever the toy stores, uh, but then he really, really wants something, right? He spots his eyes on uh, a truck, he loves trucks, and he says, I'm gonna get this. It sort of happened before, but thankfully, you know, my sister was there to help. Uh, I'm just imagining myself, though, trying to take then a screaming uh, young lad along uh, and try and getting, getting him out of the, the shop, right, uh, in front of everyone. And the complicating factor is, my nephew's half Chinese, <laughs> which is not a bad thing, that's awesome. But I just get thinking, what if people saw me taking a screaming <laughs> Chinese child uh, out of the mall? <laughs> you could see how things would be seen the wrong way, right? Uh, now, it's irrational, I know that much. Um, but it is really clear to see, some, what I'm really doing as a loving uncle could be perceived as snatching a kid, right? <laughs> Yeah, my, my family's here, they, they know now why I'm, I'm scared, so they can chat to me later. Um, but I think the Pharisees are in the same boat, right? Because while I'm just a baby-faced stranger, probably no harm necessarily to the mall, um, the, Jesus is a real threat to the Pharisees. They're a threat to his authority, their authority. They want to see Jesus as the bad guy. They want to see him as an imposter. And the lesson here is that seeing doesn't always equal believing, Right? Not when what you see is a threat. I think about this a little bit, and I, I hate ratting on them, but the Flat Earth Society is out there, and they are often doing these experiments to test whether the world is actually flat. Uh, and invariably, they seem to find results that contradict what they're aiming to prove, right? Um, but you consistently see explanations for it. This is just an experiment gone wrong, or we don't yet understand it, but we will, and then move on to the next thing. See, seeing for them isn't believing. And with the Pharisees, with us, we can do the same thing. Firstly, if we're here and you're not a Christian, you can do the same thing by dismissing the death and resurrection of Jesus out of hand. Jesus, he couldn't have risen from the dead because that wouldn't make sense. Jesus can't be the only king because what would that make of everyone else? Everyone who follows a different religion. I invite you, challenge those assumptions. Come along to one of our Explaining Christianity series, pose those questions, and find, I trust you'll find that the message of Jesus is not a threat, it's actually an invitation. And if you're a Christian here, we can do exactly the same thing. Because although we don't see Jesus as a threat, we might see others who follow him as a threat. Have you ever found yourself uh, just a little bit annoyed that Things are going well for Christians outside of our tribe. You know, God is saving people, he's healing people in all parts of the world, but they just get that theology slightly wrong, right? And it kind of grates us. We don't want to celebrate that. But really, we're acting like the Pharisees. We're letting envy and pride make, uh, write off the work of God. 
It doesn't threaten us or God's love for us or the truth to celebrate that God is working in the world. And this is really important because these presuppositions, these beliefs around Jesus, they lead the Pharisees to conclude the only option left available to them. Jesus is in league with Satan. Yes, Satan, the enemy of God, or in their words, Beelzebul. They see him heal another man, and yet in verse 24 they say, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. The Pharisees have obviously got Jesus super wrong at this point, right? We said they don't expect God's king to go around demon slaying. But this accusation so much hinges on this. It's a big turning point. Because while the Pharisees are saying Satan is at work in Jesus, Jesus flips the script and says Satan is at work in them. Now first he argues his case. If he was with Satan, why would he be casting out his own minions? Seems pretty like counterproductive, right? And what would that make of the Pharisees and their friends who also cast out demons? Are they with Satan too? It makes no sense. So Jesus instead explains what he's doing in verse 29. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Jesus the king, he's come not just to show mercy, but to wage war, to deal with the strong man and take his plunder. That is, to take people away and rescue them from the devil's clutches. This idea of spiritual warfare, it wasn't weird to many people in uh, all of time, it shouldn't, it's not weird to a lot of people now. Jesus is actually waging a war of kingdoms here. Jesus versus Satan. And in verse 28, he says, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yet Jesus' mission, it's more than just a few stray healings or teachings. He's come to establish God's reign. And to do that, he's got to kick out the frauds who are currently occupying the throne, right? And that means judgment for anyone in Satan's kingdom. He says in verse 31, Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now this phrase, blasphemy of the Spirit, it flares up some debate. It often actually gets a lot of people worried. Have I said something that's blaspheming the Spirit, that's yeah, taking the spirit um, to court or whatever it might be. I want to say really clearly that if you're worried that you've committed this, you haven't. That's one of those things. Because first of all, it's not a slip of the tongue. Jesus assures us in the next verse, every word against him, the Son of Man, will be forgiven. And secondly, places like Numbers 15, verse 30, you write that down, say that to simply act defiantly is to blaspheme God. So Jesus here is actually saying, if we take his incredible miracles, his display of the Spirit's power, we take all these things and yet do what the Pharisees do, deny them, blaspheme them, say that, oh, that's actually the work of Satan, then there's no coming back from that. You can see the sting for them, right? Jesus' warning is the same warning to anyone who sets themselves up as Jesus' foe. If you start calling the good I do evil, then you're part of Satan's kingdom. Because Jesus tells them all their words, that section just after that, show that they've actually resolved in their hearts to oppose Jesus and they'll face judgment. 
reject Jesus, reject his mercy, and he'll reject you. Except many of us don't reject Jesus outright, do we? We may not follow him, per se, but we might like to think of ourselves as even fans of him in one way or the other, right? But the real surprise of this passage is that Jesus says the fans are actually getting him wrong. We're up to the final point there on your outlines, and like it says, this is a way more subtle way of getting Jesus wrong. Because Jesus, he isn't just addressing the Pharisees in the last section. There are some fans there as well. Did you see them? When Jesus healed that man and kicked off all this fuss, verse 23 said, All the crowds were astounded and said, Could this be the son of David? So the crowds are there too. They're listening in on all of this. Some of them will have flocked to see Jesus, having heard about the amazing things he's doing and wanting to ooh and ah about his powers. They might even call themselves fans of Jesus. And in this little example, they're not necessarily obedient, but they're also not opposed to Jesus, right? They're just a bit confused. They're on the right track, wondering if Jesus is the son of David. That means the Messiah, the king. But they're still perched on the fence, which I think is a place that we love to be in this day and age, right? Here in New Zealand. We love not to commit We've got our sports team bandwagoners. You know who you are. Flip-flopping politicians. Our Facebook maybe button users. <laughs> we love to stay impartial. And that's why every single news outlet we have is completely fair and offers completely unbiased reporting. <laughs> so good, eh? And like the crowds, we love to entertain a few different ideas about Jesus without necessarily putting our money on one view. But that actually can make us fans of Jesus when we turn one aspect of what he does into the whole aspect. So there are a lot of fans of Jesus out there today. Uh, one example is Jordan Peterson and his following. They love to see Jesus as uh, a real example of uh, a person fulfilling or actualizing human potential. And similarly, growing in uh, moral fiber. I'd say that's definitely true. But the lesson is that we need to remember that a whole truth, a half-truth, turned into a whole truth becomes an untruth. Because while Jesus does uh, encourage us to do better, he also says we need his mercy. And that's what he's come to give. But some people also take the mercy and make that the whole thing, Right? Some people say that Jesus is a revolutionary, a hero for the oppressed. Come to be caring, come to show his concern for the marginalized. Again, it's true. But we can't miss the fact that he doesn't just bring mercy, he brings judgment. Jesus addresses this idea of not committing to the whole Jesus. And he's clear where that will lead us. Verse 30. Anyone who's not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Whether you're a bitter opponent, a disinterested neutral, even an uncommitted fan, Jesus says, if we're not with him, we're in opposition to him. Because Jesus says, to stop short of becoming his follower is to make ourselves the perfect target for his enemy. 
he illustrates this with a story in verse 43. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will also be with this evil generation. So it's a bit of a sad story here. If you didn't pick it up, this demon gets evicted, but then it comes back and finds its human host is, is in such good order that it simply has to come back with, with seven other more evil spirits. It's a bit like the demon's mum like kicked, kicked him out of the, the bachelor pad, uh, but then she tidied it up a little bit, and it was in such good nick, uh, and, and she made the mistake of leaving the key where it used to be. So he, he comes back with seven of his mates and just makes the trash of the place even worse, right? This is not speaking from experience or anything, uh, <laughs> just in case you were wondering. But Jesus, he has been doing the real work of tidying up people's lives. Not only has he been actually driving out demons, but he's been bringing moral reform. He's been showing people how to live God's way. But he says if the spirit of Jesus, if the Holy Spirit doesn't come and take residence in those tidied lives, instead it's the spirits of Satan that have got to come knocking. Because a fan of Jesus is just a power vacuum to Satan. A fan of Jesus is just a power vacuum to Satan. What do I mean by that? Well, many of us would remember this man. In 2011, Muammar Gaddafi, his political regime in Libya, uh, became infamous all around the world uh, for human rights violations, uh, for torture, for suppressing opposition. So it was so bad that much of the world actually uh, celebrated when at the end of that year, after a long struggle, uh, Gaddafi was deposed and killed. Surely now the country could re-establish order, right? Could bring in some leadership supported by the people. It could begin to heal. But how many of us actually know what happened to Libya after that? In many ways, it actually got worse. See, without someone at the helm, there was uh, just complete neutrality. And seven or multiple uh, different factions tried to vie for power. And so began a civil war that lasted nine years and was ended just by a tentative ceasefire. See, power vacuums, places where there's no ruler, like Libya, they're inherently unstable. Nasty types will move in and they'll wreak havoc. And Jesus says it's the same with our lives. If we're left with no ruler, then no matter how much Jesus has done for us, no matter how much Christianity might have set our morals, how much we like Jesus, we're just easy pickings for Satan. And we see that at the end of Matthew's gospel. These same crowds who were confused about whether Jesus really was the son of David, they eventually embrace the sway of Satan, the sway of the Pharisees who are out to kill him. Matthew 27 reads this. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked him, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked him, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all answered, crucify him. Then he said, why? What has he done wrong? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. 
and the crowds went from fans of Jesus to killing him. That sounds so extreme, right? It doesn't sound like something we could conceive of. And yet, in Hebrews chapter 6, God says that when we see who Jesus is, when we maybe come on Sunday, learn about him, and still drift away, we're actually re-crucifying Jesus ourselves. Because at the end of the day, there are only two kingdoms that we can belong to. The kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you might plead neutrality, but you actually belong to Satan. You may have been through life taking what you like of church, uh, never quite wanting to fully commit, uh, to float in and out if there was such an opportunity that beckoned. I've been there. This was totally my life, uh, coming out of high school. I wanted to keep my options open. I didn't want to be found guilty of overcommitting to this one way of seeing Jesus and the world. This fits the whole choose-your-own-adventure style, right? That's so popular. No doubt, there are tons of spiritual options for you to take in your life. But Jesus says, don't confuse that with many outcomes. There's only two kingdoms, no more. So the best you can do is to wait in that power vacuum for Satan to take hold. But Jesus, he offers us mercy. He offers to bind up the strong man Satan and keep you safe in his kingdom forever. So I want to ask, what are you waiting for to commit fully to Jesus' kingdom? We saw before that Jesus has given us the most undeniable display of his mercy, his death and his resurrection. Do we really want more than that before saying he's the real deal? So today could be the day you decide to ask God to help you, to commit to church, to commit to connect group, to commit to serving Jesus. And if you know something's holding you back from wanting to commit to Jesus, from being able to commit, don't go away from here today without chatting to someone about it. We really want to see us collectively work through that so we can be safe with Jesus. And even if you're a ways off calling yourself a Christian, remember that Jesus spells out there are only two kingdoms. There are many takes on Jesus, but only two ways to respond to him. His claim that any path, any option we take that isn't following him will eventually lead back to rejection. So seek the mercy of the king while it's on offer, because his kingdom is the one that will prevail. There are many takes on Jesus, but there's only two kingdoms, so there's only two responses. Which response are you going to take? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you're willing not to let us sit comfortable, and that you're willing to challenge us uh, to recognize that we need to commit to your kingdom, uh, that being a fan isn't enough. Uh, but thank you that it's not by our own efforts that you've made this possible. Uh, we pray that you would help us today to see your mercy more fully. We pray that you'd help us to respond to that uh, by seeking to live for Jesus, seeking to make him known, uh, seeking to treasure him as our one and only King. His name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.